RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. A Chunmun restaurant is being closed for disinfection after three coronavirus cases among customers. An expert warned Hong Kong could soon see a surge in new COVID-19 infections. And the US ambassador to China is stepping down from his post. Health officials say they're concerned about three new coronavirus cases linked to a Chan Chan Teng in Chunmun. A couple in their 60s who regularly had breakfast at the Doqing restaurant have come down with COVID-19. Officials found that an infected 49-year-old man also made frequent visits to the eatery for breakfast. Dr Chuang Shukwan from the Centre for Health Protection says staff at the restaurant will be tested for the virus. Because there are two relatives and one is the other case, they, they coincidentally went to the same restaurant for breakfast and we specifically asked them whether they know each other and they, they, they do not know each other. So it is uh, possible there are other, one of the um, possibilities is that some of the staff may be infected. That's why we get uh, bottles to be distributed to them to find out if any of the staff are infected. The centre reported 14 new COVID-19 cases today, 12 of which are locally acquired infections. Six of the new cases were detected through the government's universal testing scheme. A deputy director at Beijing's liaison office, Chao Hong, has thanked a team of mainland experts who have been in Hong Kong to help with the territory-wide COVID-19 testing, saying they worked so hard they even refused to stop to eat or drink during their long shifts. Ms Cho also says some of the team decided to postpone their weddings so they could join the efforts. She says this shows the deep friendship between the people of Hong Kong and the mainland. As social distancing measures are relaxed, civil servants go back to work and students return to school. Dr Leung Chi Chu from the Medical Association is warning that the number of daily COVID cases could rise back into triple digits within weeks. He says all this means now is not the time for people to let down their guard. There have been quite a lot of people in the shopping malls waiting in the restaurants and many of the restaurants were also full during the weekend. Such increase or decrease of social mixing have already caused a minor rebound of infections in the recent two days. If there is a major rebound, the number of cases can increase rapidly over a matter of two weeks. We may be having, again, hundreds of cases per day. So now the most important thing is for us to try to stay home as much as possible in the coming two weeks. And we should also speed up our case funding. The family of one of 12 young Hong Kongers detained on the mainland after being caught trying to flee to Taiwan by boat says SAR officials have double standards when it comes to fugitives. The family notes that Security Secretary John Lee has urged Taiwan to send back five Hong Kongers apparently detained there, but he claims he can't intervene when it comes to those being held in Shenzhen. Eleven of the 12 on the mainland are accused of protest-related offences in the SAR, while one had recently been arrested under the national security law. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has announced that Washington's ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, is stepping down. Mr. Pompeo thanked him for his service, saying he'd contributed to rebalancing U.S.-China relations. The 73-year-old is a former two-term governor of Iowa and has been ambassador since May 2017, a period marked by increasingly strained ties between the two nations. Citing an unnamed source, CNN is reporting that Mr. Branstad is likely to leave before the November U.S. presidential election. The reason for his departure is not immediately clear. 
Japan's governing Liberal Democratic Party has chosen Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihide Suga as its new leader. He replaces Shinzo Abe, who resigned as Prime Minister on health grounds. Mr Suga has pledged to continue Mr Abe's economic policies. Here's the BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes. Yoshide Suga is not uh, a particularly charismatic man. He's known for sort of being the stony-faced enforcer inside the government, working the backroom deals, making sure the policies of the government get enacted by the bureaucracy, uh, bullying and cajoling, sometimes uh, quite ruthless, apparently, but quite effective. Uh, and so that's why he's seen as being such a safe pair of hands. He has been Prime Minister Abe's right-hand man for a very long time, for at least the last 15 years, uh, and he is seen by many people as being absolutely key to Prime Minister Abe's success. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Federation of Trade Unions lawmaker Kwok Wai Kung has pleaded not guilty to a charge of common assault in relation to an incident in the Legislative Council in May. Pro-democracy lawmaker Ray Chan brought a private prosecution against Mr Kwok for allegedly dragging him across the floor of a conference room during a chaotic meeting. The Department of Justice had asked West Kowloon Court to adjourn the case for six weeks, but was rejected. Former lawmaker Leung Kwok Hung will face trial for allegedly snatching a stack of documents from an official during a LegCo meeting in 2016, after the Court of Appeal today ruled against his bid to take the matter up to Hong Kong's top court. Mr Leung's lawyers had taught to stop the prosecution, saying legislators, legislators enjoy absolute freedom of speech during official meetings, but the court has ruled that this doesn't cover criminal acts. In a rare show of unity, pan-democrats and pro-government lawmakers have pressed the government to step up efforts to help people with disabilities as well as their families. They say the authorities must act now to prevent another tragedy from happening after a woman was charged with murder this month for allegedly killing her 21-year-old intellectually challenged son. Violet Wong reports. Democratic Party lawmaker Roy Kwong, who chairs Lashko's Welfare Services panel, says he's holding a special meeting next week to highlight the plight of disabled people and their carers. Mr Kwong says usually meetings aren't held in September, but he wants to address the issue before the council's current term ends at the end of the month. He says it's unacceptable that severely intellectually disabled people need to wait 15 years for a hostile place, putting immense pressure on their families. The 21-year-old man who died this month had only moved back in with his family four days earlier. He had reached the age for leaving his special school accommodation. Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Jung says things are especially hard for carers during the pandemic. During this pandemic, we know a lot of these services are suspended. Daycare services, community services and even schools have been suspended. And as a result, all the caring responsibilities fall on the carers, the mothers mostly. And we think that appropriate measures have to be taken. Across the political divide, DAB lawmaker Leung Chi Cheng says social workers should keep a close eye on special school leavers when they make the transition back into family life. Mr Leung says he will also ask officials at a special meeting why only 2,000 carers have received government subsidies from the Community Care Fund when there are hundreds of thousands of disabled people in Hong Kong.
The DAB's Elizabeth Court is also proposing that a hotline be set up for carers to provide them with emotional support. They can call no one from the government at the moment. So if there is a 24 hours hotline that if something coming up or if they cannot stand the pressure anymore, they can have someone to talk to, can get some help or some support from the government, may release their pressure. Both the pro-government camp and the pandemics say more respite care services should also be provided in the territory. Violet Wong with that report. Several Democratic Party district councillors have filed a complaint to the Ombudsman over Hong Kong Post's refusal to deliver their circulars. They say they've been given no explanation and are accusing the Department of Political Censorship. Kuantong Councillor Edith Leung says she suspects the circulars have been rejected because they contain criticism of the government on political and livelihood matters. Ms Leung spoke to Francis Sit. Some of our colleagues, they mail their circulars and they have mentioned that the government is not doing a very good job in providing information about COVID-19. And even this, it is not clearly set by the Hong Kong Post saying that, okay, this is not acceptable. But comparing to other pages, some of them, we are not critical of the government. Okay, they allow it, but they didn't allow this particular page. So we know that perhaps the red line is over there. And sometimes we mentioned our political views in the first two pages. Those are also some of the examples that that might be the red line why the Hong Kong Post refused our application. Comparing to the post sent by the pro-establishment camp regarding the Hong Kong national security law, we mentioned in a very neutral way seeing that we have some information about the security law to provide to our residents. But even that, that might also step over the red line as well. But also on the other hand, the pro-establishment side, they have a complete like two pages, three pages talking about the security law and asking the police to you know, stop the violence and that is clear political message, but they are allowed it to send. So we know that the Hong Kong Post, perhaps they are not very neutral over here. How has this been affecting your work and how you reach out to your constituents? Because the circulars is a very important way for us, the district councillors, to reach out our constituents because some of the private housing. We are not allowed to go over their mailboxes and put our information into their mailboxes. So we have to post them. And if the Hong Kong Post did not allow us to make a circular, we might have to find other ways to do it. They want us to review ourselves before writing anything or sending out anything. They want to stop one of our ways to reach out our constituents using some of the administrative ways to do it. Kuntong Councillor Edith Leung speaking to Francis Sit there. The Chairman of Southern District Council, Lokin Hay, has applied for a judicial review after a Home Affairs Department worker refused to arrange for councillors to discuss police conduct surrounding the arrest of a man with autism. Maggie Ho reports. Last summer, District Councillor Tiffany Yun requested the council discuss the man's arrest in Causeway Bay last June during the anti-government protests. The man's family have insisted he was not a protester and had merely got off a bus in the area when he was arrested. Lo Kin Hei agreed for the matter to be put on the agenda for a meeting. But the secretary to the council, Priscilla Yib, said the issue was not something for the members to deal with. She didn't circulate any relevant papers in advance of the meeting or allocate discussion time for the matter.
On the day of the meeting itself, all the government officials walked out as councillors began discussing the arrest. In his application for a judicial review into the officials' behaviour, Mr. Lo says the secretary had failed to perform her duty. He says the matter was clearly relevant to Southern District Council because the arrested man was from the area, and being as policing is a public service, the council is entitled to pass his views on this to the government. He also says Ms. Yib has sought to usurp or limit the council's power by failing to carry out her duties, including recording the discussions. Mr. Lowe also wants to know whether the secretary had made her own decisions over the matter or whether she was told what to do by the government. Customs officers have arrested six people, five from the same family, on suspicion of laundering more than three billion Hong Kong dollars. Jimmy Choi reports. Customs says the sum is the largest they've ever dealt with in a money laundering case involving a money changer. They alleged that the five family members, three siblings and the parents, had used more than 100 personal bank accounts to handle proceeds from unknown sources, shell companies and law firms since 2018. The licensee of a money changer in Shenwan was also arrested after authorities discovered what they said was an unusually large amount of transactions, totaling up to $170 million between the licensee and the family. Officers say one of the five family members worked as a manager at the money changer. The head of the Syndicate Crimes Investigation Bureau, Mark Wu, explains why this case caught the attention. We are very suspicious that the assets held by these family members are not commensurate with their profile and their financial background. Two of the family members are unemployed, while the others are declared as technician, uh, manager and customer service officer. And their monthly salary range from 50,000 Hong Kong dollars to 30,000. However, they have 50 million bank deposits and have two land properties valued at 7 million and 8 million respectively. And we suspect this family had hidden income, which may be the poses from assisting money laundering. Officers have frozen $13 million worth of the family's assets and suspended the money changes operating license. Taiwan's Beijing-friendly Kuomintang says it won't send a delegation for talks on the mainland after state broadcaster CCTV described the planned visit as suing for peace. The triumphant tone of CCTV's report piled pressure on the KMT to cancel the trip at a time when many voters feel the party is overly deferential to Beijing. It will be the first time in 12 years that the KMT has not attended the Cross-Strait Forum. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. A Tunmun restaurant is being closed for disinfection after three coronavirus cases among customers. An expert warns Hong Kong could soon see a surge in new COVID-19 infections. Pro-Beijing lawmaker Kwok Wai Kung pleads not guilty to assaulting fellow legislator Ray Chan and the US ambassador to China is stepping down from his post. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's news wrap program. University of Hong Kong microbiologist Siddharth Sridhar says anti-epidemic measures are more important than finding silent carriers in battling COVID-19. He was commenting on the more than 30 infections found from the 1.7 million people screened in the government's citywide testing. He said while the scheme wasn't cost-effective, it was a good learning experience. Janice Wong asked Dr. Sridhar how many silent carriers might still be out there across Hong Kong. Exactly to estimate because we haven't uh, obviously tested the whole community. 
but by a simple extrapolation, there would perhaps be another 40 or 60 cases, silent carriers in the community, based on the number of people who have not been tested and assuming that the rate of a carriage of uh, the virus is the same among them as well. What can Hong Kong do to, to find them? Well, I think the most important thing is to continue the social distancing and mask usage measures. And uh, hopefully these silent carriers would not spread it to too many people and we can avoid uh, very major super spreading events. Then the number of cases should continue to gradually decline. The Civil Service uh, Secretary Patrick Nip has ruled out any future universal community screening for the coronavirus. But in your view, do you think it would be useful for Hong Kong to continue with mass testing without the help of the mainland? I think what we've gained from this uh, whole exercise is perhaps not so much in terms of case identification because it seems to be pretty uncommon. But uh, in terms of the experience, right, so now we know what it takes to set up these kind of testing facilities and the logistics involved in recruiting a large number of um, uh, large numbers of the population to undergo such testing. So this could perhaps be a strategy in the future for control of outbreaks. So when you have a situation like in uh, late July, early August, when we had a lot of cases coming up suddenly, it is hoped that this kind of exercise could be uh, perhaps uh, started a bit earlier. So it uh, is more cost-effective in a way. That is, you spend less to identify every case because it is more common in the community at the time. Former health official Thomas Chung, now president of the Hong Kong College of Community Medicine, told Jim Gould it'll take some time to have a proper assessment of how useful the universal testing program has been. The government hasn't really set a target, but um, I think you can look at it both ways. On the one hand, of course, you can say that, well, there's still millions of people who haven't been tested on the other hand, 1.7 million people um, undergoing a test in 14 days is a really huge number. And I will definitely say that it is the most attended public health program in the history of Hong Kong in such a short time. So from that perspective, this is something unprecedented. And if we look at the numbers, um, I think so far it uncovered at least 32 silent cases in the community. So without the program, um, I think a majority of these cases have gone unnoticed. So um, I think it, it's done a pretty decent job in uncovering the so-called asymptomatic or silence cases in the community. Mm. So what are the main lessons, do you think, are to be learned from this? Okay, I think, um, first of all, uh, you really need a very good um, organisation, you know, um, to run a programme of, of this scale, really. Um, that's point number one, and I, I'm sure that um, uh, the government will learn a lot of lessons in organizing these programs in future. And secondly, I think we do need to evaluate this program um, in terms of, you know, um, um, how good it is to make Hong Kong, you know, um, um, approaching our target of zero cases. Uh, would it hasten this process? Uh, would it cut our transmission in the community? I think we need some scientific data to do that evaluation the daily total of new local cases uh, has risen again slightly after recently dropping into single digits. Uh, are you concerned about a new surge in infections as social distancing rules are relaxed and schools reopen? Right. I think um, I'll look at it this way. Now, first of all, um, 
prepared do you think we are for a possible new wave of infections in the winter months? President Trump's threats to ban the video-sharing app TikTok are just the latest examples of the cultural impact of the US-China trade war. And tensions between the two countries aren't limited to small screens. When it comes to the big screen, the film industry, Hollywood's relationship with China, is also under scrutiny. Human rights group and Trump administration officials accuse the movie business of censorship in order to appease Beijing. The BBC's Sophie Long reports from Los Angeles. How do we know they're coming? They're coming. The 2013 apocalyptic action blockbuster World War Z saw Brad Pitt as a UN employee in a race against time to stop a global pandemic threatening to decimate humanity. Where it came from? It was based on the novel of the same name, written by Max Brooks. I, I know this sounds crazy, but I wrote about a virus that starts in China. And the Chinese government tried to cover it up. His book was never published there, because when he was asked to change China to a fictional country, he refused. I for damn sure can't allow my book to be censored because it criticizes China for censorship. China has infinitely more power to destroy American democracy than the Soviet Union could have ever dreamed. China's got the money, and, and you see it. You, you see what is coming out of Hollywood and also what's not coming out of Hollywood anymore. He walked away, but those who bought the film rights to his book, and many others, do not. China has the power to essentially buy Hollywood, and Hollywood will let them. 1997, the year Hong Kong returned to Chinese control, was also a year that saw several films released that focused on sensitive issues in China. Red Corner, Seven Years in Tibet, and Kundun. But the Chinese box office then was tiny by today's standards. And Jonathan Landreth, former China editor of The Hollywood Reporter and contributor to the Pen America Report into Chinese influence over Hollywood, said those films would not be made today. The level of influence that the Chinese market has over Hollywood is greater than it ever has been before. Being able to put one's finger on which authorities or which uh, entity within the Chinese Communist Party is giving direction to the Hollywood studios is very difficult. None of the sources with whom I speak or spoke for the Penn report will ever identify who exactly gives them direction. 
Studios, he said, are fully aware of what will happen, not just to films that the Chinese Communist Party finds offensive, but also to other unrelated projects going forward. As a result, they've started to self-censor, leading to accusations of hypocrisy from big hitters in the U.S. Capitol. Here's Attorney General William Barr. Hollywood's actors, producers and directors pride themselves on celebrating freedom and the human spirit. And every year at the Academy Awards, Americans are lectured about how this country falls short of Hollywood's ideals of social justice. But Hollywood now regularly censors its own movies to appease the Chinese Communist Party, the world's most powerful violator of human rights. But filmmakers tell stories to be seen, and a fifth of the world's population now happens to live in the People's Republic of China. Yeah, almost a fourth. Mike Medavoy has been involved in the making of more than 300 movies over many decades, and has many awards to show for it. Most of the people that are going into a deal are not dumb. They are going in for a particular reason. Nine times out of ten, it's about money. At various times in the history of making movies, there have been political arguments made on what should be made and what shouldn't be made. I don't think it belongs in the arts. You know, you, the idea is to make films for the largest number of people that, you know, that people want to see. Money talks. And given current market forces, it's unlikely the trajectory of increasing Chinese influence over Hollywood filmmakers will change. Unless, of course, they decide that taking a stand is more important than filling movie theatres. Pinocchio, it's a story that was written nearly 140 years ago, but it still proves popular today. A new film version is being released and another major studio is bringing out its own version next year. Meanwhile, the boy puppet is popping up in other productions, including as a character in a Japanese manga comic and in an Austrian musical. The BBC's Paul Moss takes a closer look at the story of this wooden puppet. I was in the theatre of puppets. The school was closed. I was waiting for it to open. The little boy has a strange face. There's something permanently downcast about his whole manner. He does live in rough conditions and is preyed on by local ne'er-do-wells out to exploit a vulnerable child. It sounds like a piece of gritty social realism, but this is a new film version of the famous fairy tale Pinocchio. Careful, eh? You must walk properly, otherwise you'll fall and hurt yourself, eh? You have to be careful. The film's director, Matteo Garoni, is best known for his hard-hitting portrait of the mafia, Gamora. And while his Pinocchio doesn't actually bump off his enemies or bury them in concrete, he's certainly not just a lovable little kid. We try to remain faithful to this masterpiece of literature and to make a Pinocchio that could be an opportunity for the kids to discover and at the same time an opportunity for the adult to go back to childhood. I didn't see anyone. Pinocchio certainly does have some adult themes, how children can be led astray, how parents may feel powerless to control the thing they've created. And then, of course, there's what famously happens to his nose when Pinocchio tells lies. It's no surprise, perhaps, that's something written about by psychoanalysts of a Freudian bent, a boy growing up who has a long protuberance sticking out of him, which gets bigger and bigger. What's going on with my nose? Oh, no, nothing, you see. You've told some lies, that's why your nose is growing. And careful where you point it. 
It's not just telling lies that gets Pinocchio into trouble. He hangs out with the wrong type of people. He smokes cigarettes. Indeed, the story's author, Carlo Collodi, intended this to be a serious morality tale. It was published in 1883, a time when Italy was still emerging from the wars of unification. And Collodi thought his story of Pinocchio could play a part in this process, according to Joseph Farrell, emeritus professor of Italian literature at Strathclyde University. There was a desire to produce not just a new Italy, but also a new Italian. Just continually telling children to be good, and that there will be consequences if they're not good. We've come a long way from the 1940 Walt Disney version of Pinocchio, all very saccharine and living happily ever after. But there's one aspect of Pinocchio which is eternal. If you go back to the Greek myth of Pygmalion, you see that same idea of an inanimate object brought to life. But according to Oliver Morton, a writer on science and culture, the growing presence of artificial intelligence gives a whole new twist to this theme. When you can ask. Your phone to do something and it does it. That does slightly change your sense of what's the human and what's the inhuman. Come on, now we go to school. First you study, afterwards perhaps we will go. Hurry, to school. This latest version of Pinocchio has already won stellar reviews around the world, and with yet another major Pinocchio film coming out next year, it seems there is an inexhaustible appetite for the story of the puppet who wants to be a boy. And that nose that just keeps growing. There are no stings on me. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Sean Kennedy from our newsroom. Under the Kindergarten Education Scheme, the registration certificate for kindergarten admission is used as a registration document. Parents of children born on or before December 31, 2018, who will attend K1 in the 2021-22 school year, are required to submit applications from September to November. Application forms are available at district offices, post offices, and the Education Bureau. For details, please call 28910088 or visit the Education Bureau website at www.edb.gov.hk. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio Three. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. 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 Oh yes, this is it. Moments to remember. Nostalgia with Ray Cordero all the way until 1 a.m.
Well, that was, of course, Samantha Vani and his very famous recording. Here on the G-string, that's what it was. You'll never know just how much I love you. Just how much I care And if I tried I still couldn't hide 